At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius, And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God chose no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Rachel. Good morning, Mosaic. My name is Brett, one of the pastors here. And today we continue our series where we're looking at the power of Jesus in the book of Acts. And seeing that for Jesus' church, the best is truly yet to come. And we know the best is yet to come because when we see the power of Jesus in this book, we're not just seeing his ability to perform miracles, but his ability to reestablish his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. I mean, after all, a miracle is simply God's kingdom design breaking through into the brokenness of our current reality. So when Jesus is healing people and raising them from the dead, those aren't just tricks for him to prove that he was, in fact, God come in the flesh. They were signs that God's kingdom was returning on earth. And following his resurrection, which was the the final blow to the kingdom of darkness, Jesus goes to his disciples and says, you're going to be witnesses for my kingdom in Jerusalem, in Judea, to Samaria, and behold, even to the ends of the earth. 
The book of Acts is the historical account of how that began to happen. See, we, we went from 120 disciples in the upper room to the gospel exploding in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost to uh, Philip going to preach the gospel in Samaria. Stephen's murder sends the disciples into Judea. Philip then goes and preaches to the Ethiopian eunuch, which sends the gospel south into Africa. And we just read the account of how the gospel and God's kingdom began to spread west into Europe through the conversion of this Italian Roman soldier. And so we call this series, The Best is Yet to Come, because Acts tells us that we are part of an unshakable, unstoppable, ever-growing kingdom. But the question that we have to ask ourselves today, Mosaic, is this. What part do we play in seeing God's kingdom continue to come and his will continue to be done on earth as it is in heaven? Well, I believe we can find answers to that question by looking at three aspects from the story of Peter and Cornelius. So today I want to look at a vision to pursue, a space to prepare, and a motivation to cultivate. So vision to pursue. Now here we have the first real Gentile coming to faith in Christ. And this is a huge deal because Jews considered traditionally Gentiles to be unclean idol worshipers who were unworthy of God's love. Jews referred to Gentiles as dogs and refused to help a Gentile regardless of what the need was. Even if it was a Gentile woman in the midst of childbirth, a Jew refused to help her because that would only mean bringing another Gentile into the world. To even enter the house of a Gentile would have made a Jew unclean and therefore unable to enter the temple to worship God. It was a massive cultural barrier that was laden with prejudice. But the Gentiles were just as prejudiced towards the Jews. See, they believed that the Jews were disloyal and unpatriotic because they refused to worship the emperor. They would call them pig worshipers because they refused to eat pork. They oppressed them and shunned them and treated them unjustly. It was prejudice and racism at its worst. And we're told Cornelius wasn't just any Gentile. He was a Roman centurion of the Italian cohort. Now, the Italian cohort were men from Italy, the very heart of the Roman Empire, who had voluntarily joined the Roman army and were considered the most loyal of Roman troops. So a traditional law-following Jew would have been extremely and deeply prejudiced towards this man, Cornelius. And yet here we see a culturally Jewish Christian leading this culturally Gentile soldier to faith. Now, what on earth could cause such a culture-shaking moment? Well, the answer is nothing on earth could have caused that. There's no amount of philosophy, no legal system, no amount of education or political leader, no economic reform could have ever brought this thing to happen. No, the prompting of a moment of this magnitude had to come from somewhere other than earth. And it did in the form of two visions. Verses three through four, we read this. About the ninth hour of the day, he, Cornelius, saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. Now, with Cornelius' vision, we have a man who has never actually heard the gospel before but who had somehow come to the knowledge of the God of the Jews as the one true God. It's what the Jews refer to as a God-fearer, a non-Jew who worshipped Yahweh. Now, perhaps he had grown disillusioned with the gods of, the, of his Roman culture. We don't know why, but we are told that something in his heart was seeking and searching for Yahweh. And in a moment of prayer, God sends an angel in a vision to direct Cornelius to pursue this Jewish man because he needed to hear what Peter had to say. 
Now, Cornelius' vision shows us two important aspects about God's kingdom. First, it shows us that religion doesn't save. See, Cornelius prayed regularly. He gave consistently. He would go to the synagogue, the local synagogue, to worship. In many ways, he was more upright and religious than even Peter was. And yet God says, it's Cornelius, I see your moral deeds. I see your alms. I see your good works. But those are not what save you. Cornelius, you need to hear what Peter has to say. Cornelius, you need to hear the gospel. See, Cornelius was seeking, and God was faithful to give him what he didn't even realize he needed. Something beyond morality. Something beyond spirituality. He needed Jesus. The second thing this vision shows us is that diversity reveals the gospel. See, God reveals Jesus to Cornelius not in isolation, but through a relationship with someone not like himself. See, the first question, as I'm studying through this passage this week, the first question that comes to my mind as I'm reading through it is, why didn't the angel just preach the gospel to Cornelius right there? I mean, he's seeking God. His his ears are attentive to what the angel has to say. Why doesn't the angel just say, hey, Cornelius, you're a good man. God sees your goodness. And now let me tell you about Jesus. Why have him send for Peter, who was 40 miles down the road, in an era where they didn't have cars. Well, because God builds his kingdom with people who have been created to reflect who he is to the world. And we can never reflect the image of a triune God as isolated individuals. See, God is a diverse community in and of himself, and therefore he puts us in community for the purpose of loving him and loving one another as a reflection of who he is to the world. Miroslav Volf, in his book titled After Our Likeness, explains it like this. Because the Christian God is not a lonely God, but rather a communion of three persons, faith leads human beings into the divine communion. One cannot, however, have a self-enclosed communion with the triune God, a, a foursome as if it were. For the Christian God is not a private deity. Communion with this God is at once also communion with those others who have entrusted themselves in faith to him. Hence, one and the same act of faith places a person into a new relationship both with God and with all others who stand in communion with God. Now, notice he doesn't say, with all others who are easy to get along with, or with all others who are comfortable to be around, or with all others who have similar interests and needs as you do. No, he said, all others who are in communion with this God. You see, it wasn't just that God wanted Cornelius to listen to Peter. It was also that God wanted Peter to love Cornelius. And when God wants to bring his kingdom on earth, he does so by reconciling people back to himself, yes, but also by reconciling people back to one another, even those who are the farthest apart. Which takes us to Peter's vision. Verses 10 through 15, it says, And he, Peter, became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance. And saw the heavens open as something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call unclean. Now, it's right at lunchtime and Peter decides to go pray. And in the midst of his prayer, he begins to feel the pangs of hunger. And God uses that physical need, the recognition of that physical need to speak to Peter's heart about a much deeper spiritual need. 
A blanket is lowered and some food and animals are on this blanket. Some are, are considered clean by Jewish customs. Some are considered unclean by Jewish customs, by their dietary law. And to eat unclean items would have made Peter unclean as a Jewish man. The voice says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter rebukes the voice, which is common habit for Peter. Basically saying, no, 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 God, I've never eaten what's unclean. Remember, I've done the thing that's required to make me acceptable to you and to your people. See, this dietary food law was one of the things that separated the Jews from those filthy Gentiles. And this voice is telling Peter to violate that law. See, Peter, having walked with Jesus in this moment, is now reaching back to grab hold of a previous identity. Reminding God that he had done the thing that needed to be done to be considered worthy of God's love. To which God replies, Peter, a person is not acceptable because of what they have or have not done. A person isn't clean because of the culture they are born into or the color of their skin or the language they speak or the money in their bank account. A person is acceptable because I have made him or her to be so. Peter, your standing before God does not come from what you eat or don't eat. It comes from the status that I have given you as my redeemed. It's not based on what you do. It's based on who I am. Peter, rise, kill, and eat. See, Peter was forgetting his true identity, his true status. He was forgetting what God's kingdom was all about. And the root of that false identity was producing the fruit of prejudice in his heart. So Peter needed to be reminded of what kind of kingdom he had been brought into and what kind of king was seated on the throne. And though this vision, through this vision, God shook Peter out of this former way of thinking. And we know this because as the men arrive that Cornelius sent, Peter invites them in and entertains them as his guest, a gesture that would have caused him to become unclean within the Jewish culture and society. And when he arrives at Cornelius' home, see that his treatness of this Gentile soldier was one of equality and not prejudice. In his commentary on this passage, John Stott wrote this, Peter refused both to be treated by Cornelius as if he were a god and to treat Cornelius as if he were a dog. See, God gave Cornelius a vision to pursue Peter. And then he gave Peter a vision to pursue Cornelius. Men who would normally go out of their way to avoid, finding, to avoid one another find themselves united by a common pursuit. See, God gave two different men two different visions in order to unite them in the pursuit of God's one vision for the world, which is a kingdom built on unconditional love, a love that originates within God's Trinitarian nature, Father loving Son, loving Spirit, loving Father. And nothing displays that love greater than people who have nothing else in common coming together to love and serve one another as family because of the one thing they do have in common, the name of Jesus. See, that is God's vision for the world. To see men and women from every nation, every skin color, every socioeconomic status, every relational status, every stage of life, every size and every shape, loving one another as a reflection of who he is. So who has God given you a vision to pursue? Who is he calling you to build with for the sake of his kingdom? See, maybe he's given you a vision to reach out to your spouse, to work through your differences, to to stop tearing one another down and instead start being agents of healing in one another's lives. Maybe God's given you a vision for the people in your community group, 
even though they're not in the same stage of life or aren't the same ethnicity or the same age. Maybe God's speaking to your heart about how to love and serve and do life with them together so that you can come to a unified vision of what God's kingdom is all about. Because listen, being a multi-ethnic, multi-generational church goes way beyond sitting in a room on Sunday mornings with people who don't look like you but you know nothing about. It's about pursuing those people in deep, meaningful, gospel-centered relationships. That's why I love my community group. And I get to pray with Rohan and Jocelyn John, a a married couple from India. When they brought their child home from the hospital, I was there to lay hands on him and pray. When they just recently closed on their first home a couple of weeks ago, I was there to pray over their home. I get to hang out with Eric Ryan, an older white guy who's empty nester, and get to learn about what it is to love my wife the way he loves Cindy. And I get to hang out with my buddy Andre, who's a single man from Romania, and talk about orphan care and what he, his family's doing in an orphanage there in Romania. I get to hang out with my man Sharif, a married guy from Uzbekistan who set up a sports camp to reach the children in his neighborhood, and I got to go help be a part of that. I get to stand with and pray with Juliet, a single woman from Trinidad, as she continues to mourn the loss of somebody close to her people that I have very little in common with, but with whom I share the commonality of God's love in Jesus' name. And I see Jesus in a whole new perspective when I see him through their eyes. Or maybe for you, God has given you a vision for your neighbors or your coworkers. Or maybe for people in another part of the world like Rwanda, Ethiopia, Mexico, or the Ukraine. Or maybe for somewhere else. But the reality is this, if God is giving you a vision for someone, it's likely he's giving them a vision for you as well. He's preparing their hearts for what it is you have to say. We simply need to be faithful, obey, and go. But you may also be saying, Brett, how can I know if God has given me a vision for someone? That sounds kind of scary and difficult and messy. How can I trust God enough to step into those kind of relationships with people who are not like me? Which brings us to our second aspect of our passage, a space to prepare. So even though we have two different men from two different cultures, there is one constant variable in their stories. Their visions came to them as they were spending time with God. Verses 1 and 2 says, At Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. Verse 9, it says, the next day as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. See, these men were both in the habit of making space in their lives for God to show up. Cornelius was feeling his way towards God like a person in a dark room who can just see the light breaking through underneath the door, but unsure of how to get from one side of the room to the other. He was making space in his life for God to move. Peter, having walked with Jesus personally, was on the roof spending time with his friend. One on the verge of knowing God, the other personal friends with God, but both were giving God something to work with. So this moment in church history that in many ways is responsible for your salvation if you're here as a Christian today, began in a still quiet place that two men had prepared in their hearts and in their schedules to give God space to move in their lives. Think about that. They were both ready and waiting for God to move. And when God spoke, even though it didn't make any sense to either one of them, they were willing to step into that situation, trusting that God was at work. 
A few weeks ago, our youth pastor, Wendell Williams, he did this during our M youth service. He asked the students to just sit down and listen and be quiet and, and ask God, God, what, what do you want to do in my heart over this summer? See, he was helping our teens prepare space in their hearts and lives for God to give them a vision for someone. One of our seventh grade girls wrote this note. I'm expecting God this summer to make my eyes weep for what his eyes weep for. To make my heart break for what his heart breaks for. To make me weep and break for the children who have been abandoned by their parents. For the people living in poverty. For the nations of Africa. See, it's in those moments where we've prepared space that God speaks destiny into our hearts. Husbands and wives, how often do you listen for God to speak to you about your marriage? Singles, how often do you listen to God to speak to you about your future spouse or if you should even have a spouse? Employers, how often do you listen for God to speak to you about your company or your employees? How often do we spend time listening to God to speak to us about our neighbors or to speak to us about the nations and where he would call us to go? See, if we're going to be the kind of church that pursues God's vision for the world, we have to be willing to make space in our lives for God to speak. We have to give him something to work with. And this ought to impact our calendars as well. So are we leaving enough margin in our lives to follow God's lead? Or are we jamming our schedule so full of activities and entertainment that if God were to give us a vision for someone, we'd actually be too busy to do anything about it? Are we living with his mission in mind? See, if you read the New Testament, you'll see that Peter was a pretty busy guy. I mean, he was helping to start the church. He was healing the lame. He was raising the dead. He was, you know, writing the Bible. Even caring for his mother-in-law. Yeah, that's exactly. The guy had a few things on his plate, I'd say. And yet, having made space in his life for God to move, once God gave him that vision, Peter went. And you and I are sitting here today as a result. Listen, there's a world of Corneliuses out there. In our own homes, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in other nations. And God is giving them a vision for his kingdom. They're waiting for someone to come tell them what it is that they need to hear. But are we making space in our lives for God to give us a vision to go to them? See, it's my hope that 100 years from now, 200 years from now, there will be Christians, Christians gathered together to worship Jesus, thanking God that those people at Mosaic had a vision to go and made space in their lives to obey God when he gave them that vision. But with all the pressures and expectations and busyness of life that we all experience, preparing that space can seem daunting, can it? With so many different voices screaming for our attention, both figuratively and literally, if you have four kids like I do, it takes sacrifice and discipline to prepare that space in our lives. And if that sacrifice and discipline simply comes from some place of duty and obligation, then eventually it will fizzle out. There has to be a stronger motivation than just obligation and duty. But what is it? What is it that can grip our hearts with more power than the demands of our schedules or the obligation of religion? Well, it's the same thing that moved Peter past the obligation of his cultural identity, which brings us to the third aspect of our passage, motivation to cultivate. 
It says, so Peter opened his mouth and said, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach the gospel and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. See, I believe Peter was able to move past his own cultural identity and prejudice towards Gentiles because of what we see in two different verses in this passage. The first is right here in verse 34. Peter says, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. Now, that word partiality literally means to unjustly treat one person better than another to show prejudice. So Peter is saying that having received this vision and seeing that God called him to serve this Gentile and his entire household, he finally gets it that though he may be prejudiced, God is not. The other verse is back in verse 16 where it tells us that God sent this vision three times to Peter. Now, if you're familiar with Peter's story, that number three ought to stand out to you. See, in all four gospel accounts, we read about how Peter, after swearing he would never abandon Jesus, ends up denying that he even knows him when Jesus is arrested. When given the chance to love Jesus the most, Peter bails and unjustly treats himself as better than his Lord. Then John records this story following Jesus' resurrection in John 21. It says, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. See, Peter had failed to make space in his life for Jesus and had denied him three times. He had missed the vision of God's kingdom and instead had played the hypocrite in an attempt to save his own neck. He had shown prejudice towards his Messiah. But after his resurrection, Jesus stands before Peter and three times restores him and tells him, Peter, I'm choosing you to love and lead my people. Peter, I trust you to be who I've called you to be. Though Peter had treated Jesus unjustly, Jesus was still pursuing Peter in love. So by the third time this vision comes to Peter, Peter has to have realized what God was trying to communicate. God was saying, Peter, this is what it looks like to feed my sheep. It means loving those who may be prejudiced towards you, serving those who you may be prejudiced towards, and doing so with the same kind of love that I showed you when you unjustly considered yourself as better than me. So Peter realized in this moment he was no better than this Gentile soldier. Both had denied their true king at some point in life. Both are in need of God's grace. 
Both needed Jesus to make them whole again, to restore them to his kingdom. What Peter realized then is what you and I need to realize today. And that is this truth, that the most amazing, most beautiful, most powerful, most holy being in the universe, the king over all creation, has loved us. Not because of who we are, because of anything that we've done, but in spite of those things. See, Peter was doing what we all do every day. He was unjustly treating himself as better than others. So we all tend to judge ourselves based on our motives, but judge others based on their actions. Because as long as I know that I'm above that person or those people, then I can judge my standing before God and before others as acceptable. See, that is the heart of prejudice. That's the heart of inequality. And that can be as ugly as blatant racism, but can also be as subtle as thinking that person or those people can never understand me or speak into my life because they're not like me. It's what I like to call the, you don't know what it's like to be me syndrome. See, racism is more obvious, but both of these sentiments come from the same place. A heart that says you're other than me and therefore not as valuable. And that was what God had to shake Peter out of. And I believe that's why Peter's gospel proclamation here is so personal. Notice he says he appeared to us whom he had chosen, that we ate and drank with him, and he commanded us to preach. So I believe in that moment, Peter is being reminded of how Christ loved him in his own betrayal. And I believe that Peter was preaching as much to himself in that moment as he was to Cornelius. And when Peter was reminded of how Jesus, the only one who was truly other than, the only sinless one, had continually pursued him in love, even after he had abandoned him in his greatest hour of need. I believe that was what enabled Peter to overcome the prejudice in his own heart and go in pursuit of Cornelius. See, that's what unconditional love does to us. It overcomes our fear and our self-preservation. See, self-preservation says, I better protect myself. But love says, I choose to lay down my life. Self-preservation says, I need to elevate my image. Love says, I choose to lower my image for the sake of elevating others. Self-preservation says, I better retreat in defense. Love says, I choose to pursue in unity. And that love is rooted in the fact that Jesus loved me even when I had betrayed him. We have to cultivate that motivation. We have to be intentional about thinking this way, about living this way, about choosing to engage in those kinds of relationships. But see, this is how Jesus has built his kingdom from the beginning. When he called his first disciples, he called fishermen to walk with tax collectors, prostitutes to walk with Pharisees. He called a Christian killer to become one of the greatest leaders the church would ever know. He called Philip to teach the Ethiopian eunuch. And here, Jesus gives Peter a vision to pursue Cornelius, the Gentile Roman military leader. And today, he's given us, you and me, a vision to pursue one another and the world in that same love. But we can only do that if we have received Jesus' love for ourselves, if we're making space in our lives for God to move, and if we're pursuing a vision for the people God has called us to serve. If you've never confessed your sin and received Jesus' sacrifice and forgiveness, 
if you've never acknowledged your betrayal and your prejudice towards him, and in light of that prejudice, his love for you and the forgiveness of that betrayal, I would just encourage you right now, even as you sit in your seat, to just pray this. Jesus, I see now that I have treated you unjustly, but you have loved me unconditionally. Overwhelm me with that love and make me new. If you don't have space in your life for God to move, I don't want to challenge you to make space. Whatever it is that you need to stop doing, or whatever it is that maybe you need to start doing differently, I want to encourage you to trust God to meet you in those moments and do something amazing in your life, to give you a vision for his heart for the world. And if you're not pursuing people who are not like you, then maybe start today by inviting someone over for dinner or out to lunch. Maybe try connecting with one of our community groups or just walking across the street to have a conversation with your neighbor. See, God is doing something uniquely amazing in this place. And this thing that we call mosaic, he has given us a vision for the city and for the world. Oh, my prayer is that we would see that vision come to pass.